May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Over the last uh, it is the kingdom of God or the arrival of God's rule. Mark introduces his gospel as the beginning of the good news or gospel of Jesus the Messiah. And immediately he references then a text from Isaiah in the next verse. You see, Mark's gospel, Jesus' gospel, actually is Isaiah's gospel. A few verses on from the passage that Mark quotes in Isaiah 40, it says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, Your God, behold your God. And of course then you remember a few chapters on in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Behold your God, your God reigns. The good news according to Isaiah, now according to Mark, according to Jesus, is that God has arrived on the scene. He's bringing his good, peaceful, happy reign to the world. So get on board. Get with the program, says Jesus. And that's why we find the first thing that Mark, of course, Jesus is saying in Mark 1. He says, the time has come. The rule of God's at hand. Turn around, believe in, trust in, give yourselves to the good news. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us about God's kingdom. He says it's a place where the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers and the thirsters after justice thrive and flourish. It's a place where its citizens laugh for joy, even when they're threatened. It's a place where they love their enemies, where they win their battles by prayer, and where they trust God to look after their every need. Up is down, down is up, the world's changing. Follow me, be a part of it, is Jesus' message. And of course, God demonstrated decisively that Jesus was right when he raised him from the dead and he began the new day of transformation. All of which brings us to Paul and his letters to the first groups of Jesus' followers. Now, there's a fallacy that you often hear about Paul's conception of the gospel, that it was different to that of Jesus. And you get that in popular treatments of Paul. If you read A.N. Wilson's book on Paul, you'll get that. Sadly, also you get it um, sometimes in the church as well. The idea that somehow Paul took the very simple Jewish story of Jesus and he made it into this complex thing that we now know as Christianity. So the real deal, the authentic voice is Jesus, and Paul is just so much kind of background noise. On the other hand, we have some Christians for whom Paul is the real deal, and the Gospels and Jesus' teaching is really a bit peripheral. So justification by faith and, and trusting versus trying, no room for good works, is really the core and the heart of the Gospel. And you know, it's a great pity that we don't really have too much of that in Jesus. And in fact, we have some embarrassing passages like Matthew 25, where Jesus says that the last judgment will be squarely on the basis of whether we've fed the hungry or clothed the naked or visited those in prison. Somehow that just doesn't seem to fit too well. So Paul versus Jesus, is that the conclusion we're forced to when we read the New Testament? As Paul himself would say, by no means. You see, Paul, like Jesus, was a Jew, and we might expect his whole outlook and worldview to be very similar, forged by Jewish tradition, theology, the Old Testament scriptures. And on top of that, 
He specifically refers to the kingdom of God on at least 12 occasions in his letters. And actually, the truth be told, his entire theology is based on this idea. In the passage we read earlier from Colossians 1, 1 verse 13, we read, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Elsewhere, he tells us that the rule of God is all about justice, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. He says that suffering shows that Christians are worthy of the kingdom. And interestingly, time and time again, with specific reference to the kingdom of God, he shows how Jesus' followers are to live as those who are participating in this new day. Much of what he has to say, like Jesus, is about the lifestyle of those who are participating in this new thing that God is doing. And as we read Paul's letters, we begin to realize that actually the gospel he preached was, again, Isaiah's gospel. Behold your God, and your God reigns. It's the same good news, the same good news that Jesus preached, that God is decisively entering history to bring change and to bring transformation. So let's begin to think about the way that, the way of life that Paul imagines for these new groups of uh, Jesus followers that he wrote to. These people whose, whose lives are caught up in God's new transforming rule. Let's think for a moment about the lives of the Christians in Colossae. Colossae was part of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It was like most sizable towns of the empire at the time. It would have borne the marks of the empire. Rome took a steady stream of tolls and taxes and so on, and there was a flow of wealth away from the city. The myth of the Pax Romana was perpetuated, per, uh, perpetuated through the rhythm of life in the cities, the festivals, feasts, birthday celebrations for the empire. The dominance of Rome was declared all around in the statues, inscriptions, temples, and so on that people experienced every day. There was a myth of peace and prosperity, which sadly most people did not share in. People experienced economic inequality, slavery, virtual slavery, poor living conditions, power imposed by violence, and the idea that the way things were was the way things were supposed to be, that their lives could never change. They were shaped by the empire, by fate, by the various spiritual powers that governed the world, by the pull of their own passions, desires, inner demons. Now, when we turn to Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, we read Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He prays for all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He prays that they may increase in the knowledge of God. Chapter 2, he refers again to the same sort of prayer, that they would reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now that, I don't know, that sounds just a bit highfalutin to me. That sounds a bit sort of airy-fairy. Come on, Paul, pray for something real. What is he praying for here? He's praying that the minds of the Colossians would be expanded and their eyes fully open to see the new reality that has come about through Christ. He puts it another way in Romans 12, doesn't he? To be, when he tells the Romans to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He's praying, you see, for the Christian imagination to be fired, for the Christians to see past the current state of affairs in the world and to see God at work, to see the mustard seed of the kingdom growing and flourishing, to see past the arrogance and the blustering of all the powers 
to see that things are different and to see that things can be different. Paul is praying for the Colossians' imaginations to be fired. He gives, a, gives some content to this imagination in 113 when he says, we've been taken right out of the domain of darkness and put into this other realm of God's beloved Son. And then he continues on in 15 to 20 to give an alternative vision, an alternative reality to the dominant one that surrounds the Christians at Colossae. This is a state of affairs where Christ is preeminent, where the world is not ultimately ruled by tyrants, by violence, by the powers that dominate human beings, whether they're political, whether they're personal uh, inner demons of addiction or self-loathing, self-centeredness or whatever. Christ is the very image of the Creator God. He is risen from the dead. He is the preeminent one in all the universe. Everything bows to His authority. He is in the process of bringing reconciliation to the world. So Paul points the believers to a different reality from the dehumanizing forces that they see all around them every day to that of the peaceful rule of Christ. So Paul's letter to the Colossians is fundamentally about shaping the imagination of the Christian community. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that the key pathology of our time, which seduces us all, is the reduction of the the imagination so that we are too numbed, satiated and co-opted to do serious imaginative work. Now if he's right, then one of our major tasks as Christians is to reimagine the world as if Christ and not the powers is sovereign. The images of the empire all around the the Colossians ensnared their imaginations, but Paul knew that a radical Christian reimagining, which worked its way out into radical Christian behavior, could devalue the empire and all the powers. And his proclamation of the reality of the rulership of Christ actually was a subversion of the dominant reality around the Colossians in the first century. When we begin to think what it is that Paul prays for, wisdom, true understanding, knowledge of God, do we ever pray for each other like that? I wonder. Quite rightly, we pray for this or that situation. We pray for this, this person in this situation. And that's right. And you know, Lord knows there are some you know, very difficult circumstances that many of us are, are facing where we really need to pray specifically and bear one another up in those specific situations. But I wonder, do we ever pray a prayer like Paul's? Do we pray that God would help us reach the full understanding of the knowledge of God? Do we ever pray that Norman will be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding? That Rose's mind will be transformed? Do we ever pray prayers like that so that it will result in lives that refuse to settle for the ordinary, that reaches out to bring the reality of God's kingdom into the present to enable us to live lives uncommon, as the song we heard earlier says? Could we begin to pray prayers like that for each other? Because actually, you know, we really need to pray those prayers because we're not really so much unlike the Colossians. Two millennia on, the powers that work in the world have changed, but they still impose a dominant version of reality. As Brueggemann says, they seduce us, they numb us, they satiate us, 
As much as the Colossians did, we need to have our imaginations fired and our minds changed. What is it that enslaves our imaginations today? We're bombarded, are we not, first of all, by advertising on TV, radio, web, text, billboards, newspapers, magazines. We can't move without something urging us to get the new piece of technology, to get this new fuel-efficient car, or to get this new youth-inducing face cleanser. Recession or no recession, the world is based on a model of economic growth, crucially depends on us buying, using, discarding, buying. Consumerism is our way of life. And what's being sold to us half the time is not really real. I want you to have a look at this video. It lasts 50 seconds, and I think you'll find it very interesting. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Do you think they could do that with me? You know, I think I could, I could do with a little bit of that. Um, can we maybe have the lights on again, Nigel? Thanks. Um, but you know, we're not really being sold products in the ads. We're being sold a lifestyle or a look or a feeling. But you know, as the ad shows, it's based on unreality. This media, dominant media-led culture pushes us that way and this And the question is, is there an alternative? Is there another way to live? Closely allied with the driving force of consumerism is a highly personalized approach to ethics and daily life. So what's right for me is what suits me or what I can get away with in practically every TV, drama, soap, movie, you know, sports event even, promotes that same message. The world, the the mold that the world continually pushes us in is looking after number one, promoting my agenda, what can I have, what can I consume, because, as the ad says, you're worth it. How do we live in this world? How do we speak and live the good news about the rule of God in this kind of context? How do we shape our collective imagination so that we're set free from the constricted imagination of our days Well, first of all, we need to so immerse ourselves in the scriptures, so indwell their narratives, so be permeated by their images that our imagination is transformed. We need to let the alternative reality of the New Testament, that of the arriving arriving kingdom of God, wake us up from the numbness that's induced by everyday life, and we need to start imagining a new reality for ourselves, for our community together here, and for the world. Jacob Dillon, son of Bob, in a recent interview talked about being transported by books. And he says, the second you close the book, then you're bombarded with the billboards again. But when you're reading it, you're taken somewhere. 
And that's the power, of course, of this special book. It can take us away from the bombardment of the billboards so we can see a different picture. In sports coaching, imagination or visual imaging has been shown to be very, very effective in enhancing performance. So the golfer or the tennis player envisages themselves making the shot, playing well before the match, and the mental work that's done beforehand means you get a better performance during the actual game. They want to try that. I know there's a few golfers here this morning. Definitely want to try this one. Mental imagery trains our minds and creates the neural patterns in our brain that tells our muscles exactly what to do when it comes to match day. So here's where the act of Christian imagination pays off. Like the sports person, not being content with the way things are, the current level of performance, who envisages a different reality and sees that come into being, so we too need to train our minds to see something different than everything around us uh, pushes us. By a vision of Christ as the preeminent one who is Lord of all and who is reconciling all things to himself. Reading the Bible isn't something that we do because that's what Christians do or because, you know what, we feel really guilty if we missed our daily Bible reading. It's part of this process of feeding our imagination so that when it comes to match day, in other words, tomorrow morning when we go to work or whatever we're doing, our lives can reflect the reality of the reign of Christ. Dennis Waitley is a leading uh, life coach, and he says this, the question is, who's putting what into your mind? He says, is it junk food in your mind, or are you putting in some stuff that really makes your mind work well? And he talks about the cycle of observation, imitation, repetition. Now, this is not an appeal to withdraw from popular culture. Far from it. But we need to engage actively, not passively, just allowing the dominant images and viewpoints and mores to wash over us. We need to see that there is an alternative view of reality to the one that we saw constructed on the video a few minutes ago. It all starts with us waking up, opening our eyes, seeing the truth of Colossians 1.13, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has put us into a new realm, a new reality, and then we go on to live in that new reality. And he gives some pointers to what life in the new reality is like. Is like. And it'll come as no surprise to us that the revolution starts here. If we were to read on in chapter 3 of the letter, Paul says we're to put off the old self and its practices. And he mentions some of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, slander, obscene talk. These habits of life belong to a different um, passing version of reality. And instead, he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of the Creator. It's only in God's kingdom, God's version of reality, that we become fully human. God is making all things new, and he's starting with us. Put on, Paul says, compassion and kindness, patience, bear with one another, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Above all, put on love. That's what like life looks like in God's new kingdom. It's radically different to the way of life that just fits in. So Paul is appealing to us to imagine that our lives could be different and then to begin to live in that reality. Note that he says, put off the old self, and then he says, put on the new. You see, living in this new reality is not automatic. It doesn't just happen. Paul says in Colossians 1, I toil 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. God is at work powerfully in us. To be effective, he needs us to make decisions and choices that give him the opportunity to make his energy felt in our lives. It takes us to continually feed our imagination on the biblical narratives, passages like Colossians 1. We're not on our own. We're not trying to keep up to some picture of the Christian life that Paul presents for us. God is working with his energy within. He powerfully works within us. But we need to be complicit with God, making decisions to put off the old and put on the new. To quote uh, Jacob Dillon again, in a recent song he says, God wants us busy, never giving up. I toil, but he wants nothing but the whole wide world for us. Good news this morning is that Christ has set us free from having to live under the domination of any power whether it's the pressure to conform, whether it's personal addiction to anything, whether it's lack of self-esteem, self-centeredness, life can be different. We can be free. There is a different reality that awaits us through the spirit of the risen Christ. The message of the Bible is about God coming to transform the world. And that process started in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it begins in us We live a life uncommon, a life that's not squeezed into the same old consumerist mold, a life that's free from the delusion that I am the center of the universe, a life that's free to live, to love and to serve, and to demonstrate to to a waiting world that there really is a life uncommon waiting to be lived. Can you imagine such a life for yourself this morning? Where on a day-by-day basis you experience God's peace and not anxiety about a million and one things. Where thankfulness and praises to God are on your lips rather than cynicism or bad language. Where compassion and kindness and forgiveness are your modus operandi. Can you imagine such a life? Sounds like a tall order actually, doesn't it? But yes, it goes against the the whole thrust of the world around us. But as we read Paul's words this morning, we see a different reality into which we have been called. Christ is risen. He reigns. Love is supreme. Be who you are, says Paul to us this morning. You've died with Christ. You've risen with him. His spirit is within you. Things can be different. It's wonderfully, gloriously possible to live the life uncommon and to be a part of the new unfolding, peaceful, joyful reality of God's kingdom. And yes, there's hard work to be done. Yes, there are Christian disciplines to be embraced. But first and foremost, we need a vision of what can be to imagine the future and to begin to walk in it ourselves and to demonstrate it to a needy world. Come on, you unbelievers. Move out of the way. There's a new army coming, and we are armed with faith. To live, we must give, and lend our voices only to sounds of freedom. No longer lend our strength to that which we wish to be free from. Fill your lives with love and bravery, and we shall lead a life uncommon. May God give us the grace this morning to imagine afresh the alternative reality of his peaceful, loving kingdom. Amen.